0: My name is Greg Smith and I'm your host. First things first, I want to apologize in advance for some of the sound quality issues in the beginning of this episode. You might notice a change in my audio partway through the show. I had to fix some microphone issues part of the way through our recording. It doesn't sound atrocious, but thank you anyway for bearing with it. The music on today's show is a song called Afar and Away by Hot Water Music, one of my favorite bands of all time, from their 2019 EP Shake Up the Shadows. If you want to hear the song in full, plus all the other music I use on these episodes of mine, check out the t App B-Sides playlist on Spotify, which is linked in the show notes. And while the start of the 2020 NFL season might seem far away, that's not going to stop us from drafting best ball fantasy teams. And that's what this episode is all about. Chris Allen is going to join me shortly to give a primer on what best ball is and how to play it. We'll talk about what makes it different from traditional season-long leagues, some core principles of best ball strategy, how to approach roster construction, and then we'll close the show by pinpointing some of the biggest question marks from around the league that are creating uncertainty in our best ball drafts right now. We did record this late last week on February 27th, so keep that in mind with regards to any news that might conflict with what we talked about. But you, you get the picture. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, before I bring Chris on, I want to remind you that 2019 4 for 4 subscriptions are now over. So if you want to re-up your access to our award-winning tools and content... Head over to 444.com today and get in early with your sub for the 2020 season. And in case you missed it, be sure to go back and listen to the first team map episode of the year from John Paulson and Anthony Stalter. Among other things, they discuss the trends and takeaways from 2019's top scorers at each position, including what I thought was an especially intriguing note on where in ADP the top 12 running backs came from last year. It's great stuff. Go check it out. And now I'd like to welcome in Chris Allen. You know him, of course, from 444.com. You can also find his work on number fire and at DynastyLeagueFootball.com. Follow him on Twitter at ChrisAllenFFWX. Chris, it doesn't feel like it's been that long since we talked. We, we were together on the podcast near the end of the season, uh, one of the final weeks there. And here we are turning over a new leaf, getting ready for 2020 fantasy football. And we're talking best ball today. How are you doing?
1: Uh, I mean, I think the very first line in my article, my very first article of the 2020 calendar year was there is no off season. I mean, there really isn't. I mean, the moment I think that the Super Bowl was over and it just immediately transitioned into we were already thinking about dynasty or most folks were already turning the page to the 2020 class. And we're here on the, the night of the combine where it's just complete hype season. But then on top of that, I mean, we're now talking about best ball and we're already kind of, I guess, prognosticating about what the 2020 season can can hold for us. I mean, John Paulson's already put out uh, his like early season or not too early uh, ranking. So we're already thinking about 2020. So it really feels like I mean, there's not really much of a break. So I'm just I'm just happy to be doing this, happy to be talking to you again here tonight. And it's just it's just fun. I mean, for the NFL to be structured so well that. I mean, almost every month there's going to be at least an event that we can all kind of huddle around and get as much news and take from it as possible before the first kickoff actually happens.
0: Well, and one of the things I love about these best ball drafts, and we'll get more into the details about what best ball is in case any of you listeners are unfamiliar with the format. It's great, Uh, but it allows you to draft basically any time of year because everybody's playing with the same information for the most part, and I love that Like, if I can be drafting a best ball team right now on February 27th and then I go to draft another one two weeks later, the pick order could be completely different based upon what we see at the Combine, the news that comes out of the Combine relating not just to the rookies but to teams in general and what their plans are for free agency. And you're right, Like each one of these signposts along the offseason path gives us – a new way to draft or a new framework to look at a draft in. And it's cool to see how those best ball trends play out over the off season. Like who's going to rise up from the, the low depths of ADP up to a mid-rounder, maybe even up to an early rounder, based upon the draft, the combine, free agency, all this stuff. Now, before we get too much deeper into this, let's talk about what best ball is. Uh, you wrote an article at 444.com about roster construction in FFPC best ball leagues, and we're going to talk more about that article later. But to start, why don't you let the listeners know just generally what best ball is, like what makes it different from a normal fantasy football league that you might play you know, with your buddies drafting in August? Right. Uh, And I think
1: that for just from a high level standpoint, I would say that for the most casual person. So let's say uh, and she's she's not here right now, so I can't get in trouble. But let's say like my wife wanted to play fantasy football if she was interested in doing it, but has absolutely no interest in watching the games, having to be involved in the the day in, day out, like checking on injuries, whether players are going to actually be playing that week or whatever. This is kind of the format for people that don't have or are not they don't want to get down into the weeds as much as we do or at least as much as we get sucked in every season and doing because that's what best ball format allows you to do. Like you draft enough players such that at least the hope is that you can have a starting roster each week. And then, whichever platform that you use, there are a few now that allow you, that have the best ball format available, but it will find at least the, it will find the most optimal or like the best roster construction for you for that week. So if you had, let's say, your favorite player gets hurt that week and that you would think they would be in your starting roster, that's okay. If there's a backup that was available, that that person we put into your, your starting roster for the week. And so your best score for each week is what gets calculated. So you don't have to worry about those start-sit decisions where you're sitting at your kitchen table at, you know, 1230 right before lock, having to figure out, okay, should I start this guy? Should I sit this guy or whatever? All that stuff gets tossed out the window. On the other side, and this is kind of where best ball becomes a kind of a double-edged sword, is that while all of those concerns go out the window – you, you can't react to what happens during the season, right? Because if a trade happens to occur during the season, if a player gets injured and they're out for the season, if, they, if a wide receiver, let's say, falls out of favor with their quarterback and so their opportunity within their team dwindles, there's nothing you can do to say that, well, I'll just go pick up the guy that is now going to get targets. Like, no, 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 that's not how it works. So while the muss and fuss of the, the weekly grind is not a part of what you have to do for best ball. You do have to try and at least, I guess, entertain the idea of some of these long shot things happening of your player getting traded or another player getting traded to your player's team that will affect their workload. So trying to, I guess, draft for the long run for, for the entire season is something that you have to account for, which makes that format like really fun, for, at least for me and uh, obviously for a lot of other folks that also enjoy the best ball format.
0: Yeah, you're right. It's great because it does bridge that gap between a super casual drafting experience, right? You draft it, you set it, you forget it, you don't have to set a lineup. You're automatically given the best lineup every week. On the other end of the spectrum, if you want to draft 100 of these leagues over the course of the offseason, you can get really deep into the game theory around how you draft your squad, how you construct your roster in terms of how many running backs, how many wide receivers, how many tight ends, and so on. Typically there are no transactions in a best ball league. No waivers, no trades. Once the draft is over, that's the team you're stuck with until you know, week seventeen or excuse me, week sixteen is done. Most of these only count week one to week sixteen. Now the league sizes, the lineup requirements, and the scoring settings will vary from platform to platform. So As with all versions of fantasy football, you need to pay attention to the settings. Is it a 10-team league, a 12-team league, a bigger league? What are the scoring settings? Uh, Do quarterbacks get four points per passing touchdown, six points per passing touchdown? Are we talking about point per reception, point per first down, point per carry, tight end premium? Are there yardage bonuses? Scoring does greatly impact how you want to attack these drafts, and also the lineups does... Your platform for best ball include kicker and or defense. Does it have a two QB option or a super flex option? Now, typically most best ball formats are going to be one quarterback, two running back, three wide receiver, one tight end some number of flexes, uh, maybe a kicker or defense. The 2QB and Superflex is kind of more out on the outskirts, but those Mm -hmm. sorts of best ball formats do exist. Like, for example, I play in one called King of the Hill that Scott Fish put together. It's a 16-team Superflex best ball. It's insane, and it completely jumbles up what you would think you would have to do going into the draft. Like, if I was going to draft a 12-team best ball with one quarterback, that's completely different than what I would do in a Superflex 16-team best ball. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. When it comes to
1: understanding the different platforms, that's where, just like you said earlier, understanding those differences between if it's not scoring, if it's lineup construction, uh, that's where I think there's some value in that. Like That's where you might be able to find your edge because some folks don't know how to adjust or how to, I guess yes. – uh, readjust like their player values because this is something that i'm going through right now and that this is my first uh my first season really diving into uh, the ffpc and over at the best ball format over at ffpc they used to they use a tight end premium so i believe it's at the very least it's like 1.5 uh points like per a uh, per uh, tight end reception that means your adp for most of the i guess top, at least the top 12 tight ends are now all moved up So you're expecting to see guys like Travis Kelsey, George Kittle. uh, Now, even after this past season, uh, Mark Andrews, I mean, any of those guys that were, I guess, high end tight ends after the 2019 season, ones that you would expect to see in maybe the second, third or fourth round are now first, second and third round. So even if you miss out, you might be able to collect on other positions. So you might be able to take a swing at a wide receiver that might fall to you later, running back that might fall to you. But those positions now that are more highly coveted, you have to adjust for those. And the same thing, like you mentioned, for if it's a a super flex best ball. So now quarterbacks are now moved up. That's where understanding those scoring systems and the differences between them will really help give you an edge like when you approach some of these leagues.
0: Well, right. And you can extrapolate that edge even further by thinking, okay, even if the ADP of this position, whether it be tight end or quarterback, is going up, do I actually need to... Put a higher value or premium on that position. Like I would argue that sometimes in a super flex or a two QB best ball, if you are going to pretty easily be able to get three quarterbacks, you actually don't need to spend up for the high end guys because there's so much variance week to week with quarterback scoring. You know, I mean Blake Bortles will have a big game every three weeks. Uh, Blake Bortles is probably a bad example because he hasn't been a starter (laughs) in a while, but Mitchell Trubisky. Even if he hasn't been very good, you know, over the balance of his career, he will still have spike games based upon his rushing ability, based upon just random touchdown variants that you might be able to cobble together a good quarterback trio without spending up at the position, even if it is 2QB or Superflex. And you could say the same for tight end premium. There's still that extra layer of strategy where you have to ask yourself the question, okay, yes, this position is more valuable, but what is the relative difference between the guys at the top of ADP, the guys in the middle of ADP, and the guys at the bottom of ADP? One other quick note before we get into some of the principles of best ball drafting is that in addition to all these different scoring settings, lineup settings, There are also differences in how these leagues can pay out, like who is considered a winner versus not a winner. Uh, Most commonly, I would say the best balls reward the top two or three teams, typically in a first place gets the majority of the payout, second place might double their money, and third place might get their money back or something like that, or their jelly beans back, whatever you're playing for, right? (laughs) Right. Now, Now, there are other formats that just do... What you would see in a 50 50 DFS contest, where mm-hmm. if you finish in the top half, you just double your buy in, whatever that may be. Uh, so, in that case, you have to adjust your strategy based upon where you're trying to finish. Like, if you're trying to finish as the best team, you know, top 1% or whatever, you have to aim for a higher variance outcome of your roster. Whereas, if all you need to do is finish in the top half, you might be more willing to spend your draft capital on. Safe players, floor based players as opposed to upside based players. Um, but considering that, now that we're talking about that, let's talk about some of these basic principles of best ball drafting. What stands out to you, Chris?
1: Uh, the easiest thing that stands out to me like when drafting is you're having to draft around just the NFL schedule like by itself. So you have to draft around by weeks. And now while your core players are most likely going to be your your wide receivers, your running backs and tight ends like to some extent, uh, but at the very least, like wide receivers and running backs, you're going to have a plethora of those. Like depending on your total roster size, so if we're talking about, I would say a typical roster roster size, you're talking about maybe 20 rounds, like thereabouts. So you're probably going to have six or seven running backs and wide receivers each. So that really leaves you down to like the onesie positions because typically you're only start. Well, you can only start one quarterback, and then you can put a tight end in the flex if it winds up working out that way for that particular week. But for those positions. Uh, those are where you're having to draft around uh, by weeks and having to better understand like how uh, the ebbs and flows of the of the NFL schedule so you can move around those. And the funny thing that I was finding, like especially for FFPC, because I'm approaching it just from a just a logical, cold calculating you know standpoint in that, well, if I can only start one quarterback like per week and. If I have to at least get another one in order to offset the bye weeks, then the only, the maximum amount that I'm going to need is just two quarterbacks. Possibly the same thing with tight ends, but tight end scoring normally turns out to be a dumpster fire throughout the entire season. I'm sure uh, Jen Eakins can probably tell us all about <laughs> like tight end scoring if we asked her. But like for quarterbacks, I mean, the volatility within their scorings uh, just by themselves, it just leads me to believe all right, if I get two quarterbacks, let's say two good quarterbacks, and by good quarterbacks, I mean somewhere within the top 12. Let's see if I got the QB 10 and say the QB 14. So somewhere in there, so I'm not spending a ton of draft capital on getting those quarterbacks. I should be okay. But part of what I was finding is that a lot of folks, uh, the win rate for picking up three quarterbacks was actually higher than two quarterbacks, which I thought to be quite interesting. So it's just understanding or looking at or accounting for bye weeks. And then we'll get into the strategy portion here in a little while. But, yeah, the first thing that kind of sticks out to me is just having to move around those bye weeks. And once the schedule is released, and that's probably at least for right now, that's not going to be for a few months. So right now, since folks folks are drafting, we don't have any of that information. So you really do have to account for the idea that you might wind up having two quarterbacks or even three quarterbacks that have the same bye week trying to implement that within your strategy is something that just immediately stuck out to me when I first started doing best balls.
0: Yeah. The bye week stuff is interesting because honestly, if I'm doing a redraft league where I'm going to be able to set a lineup and make pickups every week, I, I don't really regard bye weeks whatsoever during the draft because I figure I'll cross that bridge when I get there in the season. If I have too many players who are on bye in week seven, I'll figure it out, you know, after week six or maybe maybe, if I'm planning a little bit further ahead in week five or something like that, but I'm not going to worry about that in the draft with best ball. That is something you have to concern yourself with no matter what. Would you say that's also true for you, Chris, do you care about bye weeks in a a more typical fantasy football league?
1: Um, Yeah, I do. I do think that that's true because especially when it comes to, because if you're taking the whole season into account and this might be getting like probably like too much into the weeks, but you're taking the whole season into account early bye weeks, versus late bye weeks you know, I I start to think about that a bit more, like how the team is going to be, like, injury-wise and, like, just the general health of the team. And I want to say that, actually, after this past season, it's something that I've been starting to think about a bit more because if you were to think about, I don't know, let's say, even, like, the Kansas City Chiefs, if their, let's say, if their bye week wasn't where it was at, you know, after the Patrick Mahomes injury and all that, do we think that they they would have been able to get to the point where they're at, like after, you know, after essentially, well, they won the Super Bowl, right? So that part of it, it, it intrigues me, to the at, at the very least.
0: But you can't plan for that at the time of the draft, necessarily, right? You true, have no way true. of knowing that Patrick Mahomes is going to get injured the week before their bye week. I mean, that's just plain dumb luck on their account. Now, mm-hmm. this kind of brings us to another principle of best ball drafting, is that, this injury type of variance, other sorts of variance, whether it be suspension or, you know, just bad games from players, you know, bust weeks. This kind of stuff is going to happen to everyone in a best ball league, not just you and not just Chris and not just me. This is something that is going to affect anybody who's drafting this type of format. So how do we account for that when we're drafting? How do we insulate ourselves against variance? Um, Obviously, drafting backups for every position matters. You mentioned that earlier with quarterback, how in the FFPC you think that you definitely want to draft two, and it turns out when you did your research that you actually want to be drafting three. That's one way to kind of account for these injuries. Now, with that said, there are diminishing returns on drafting backups for positions, especially if you only have to start one quarterback in your lineup each week, right? You might get a slight value increase by going up from two quarterbacks to three quarterbacks, but if you add a fourth quarterback you're probably not really helping yourself all that much. In fact, you're probably hurting yourself by not using that roster spot to give you more depth at a position where you have to start more players each week, like running back or like wide receiver. How else does this ever-present variance that we're dealing with in best ball affect your strategy, Chris, just kind of at a a base level or at a top-down view?
1: Uh, From a top-down view, I would say, so if we were just to take just one singular position, uh, so the running back position, So at the very least, the way that I try and insulate myself against, uh, like, injury or just even, like, a lack of production is that I try and use, like, a tiering system in order to figure out how some of these players actually, uh, I guess, accrue fantasy points or how they actually produce on the field. And if I can... Come up with or at least have my roster tell a story that, OK, well, I have at least one or two primary backs, like guys that are going to be getting the bulk of their work. We're talking 60, 70, 80 percent of their team's rushes. So the Chris Carsons of the world, the Mark markings of the world, so on and so forth. But also pepper in some of the guys that are really going to be brought in for third downs or passing down situations. Well, unfortunately for me, I wound up investing quite a bit in like Naheem Hines, and that didn't really turn out all that well. But the idea like to me at least still made some sense. But then on the back end, you do want to take some swings on the on the backup. So if you wanted to look at, let's say, maybe um, the easiest one that I can think of off the top of my head would be uh, probably a – Oh, gosh, now the, the name has escaped me. The backup for Alvin Kamara. Now I can. Latavius uh, Murray. Thank you. Now, while his draft capital this past season, because everybody assumed that he was just going to fall right into the Mark Ingham role, uh, it didn't really come to fruition. Uh, but st- and his draft, uh, actually, his ADP, if I'm not mistaken, was somewhere in the seventh, eighth round. But at the very least, having the idea that, okay, well, if the starter were to go down here's a guy that can kind of waltz right in and pick up that production and at the very least the idea was that he also would have some standalone value week to week having that mark ingram role so having players like that kind of in those three separate tiers if i can pick up guys that have roles or at least my complete squad of running backs has at least a bit across each of those roles then at least I know that I've insulated myself, or at least I've attempted to insulate myself like from risk like throughout, uh, throughout the entire season.
0: I like that you bring up that idea of third down running backs, pass-catching running backs as players that you might be more inclined to target in a best ball. And the reason I like that is because it illustrates this idea that you don't need every running back to put up starter level numbers for you every week, you need a couple guys to do that most weeks. And then you need your backups, your third down types to fill in the blanks here and there. And there's some luck involved in that for sure. But at the same time, if you get a good mix of different types of players at a certain position, it's going to work out in a way where there might happen to be just one of those games where the Colts go down 24 nothing by the second quarter and Marlon Mack rides the pine and Naheem Hines, who you mentioned earlier, gets, you know, 10 targets and catches eight of them. Maybe he busts one off for a late touchdown or something like that in garbage time. Mm -hmm. That sort of game doesn't make Naheem Hines a good player to own in seasonal fantasy because there wasn't really a way you could have known that was coming. But in best ball, if he puts up 25 points, chances are that's going to be good enough to get into your optimal lineup for that week. And you get those points. So figuring out how those puzzle pieces come together is really important. And one of the ways I like to think about it is that whatever position you tend to draft most common in the early rounds, that's the position you probably want to skimp on later, right? Because the players you're investing in early are the players that you have the most confidence in. So if you start off with... Christian McCaffrey and Melvin Gordon as your first two picks, you probably don't need to worry too much about running back. You might not have to draft quite as many because you expect McCaffrey and Gordon to be putting up score or like uh, starter level numbers for you most weeks. Now you still need to draft some backups, but maybe you only need to draft three backups instead of four or five and you can flip it the other way, right? Let's say you draft two wide receivers to start your draft after that you might have to spend more picks on running back to kind of make up that uncertainty difference that you have at the position. Um, So that's something else to keep in mind is that whatever position you tend to draft the most early might be one, and this isn't always the case, but it might be one that you want to skimp on later in the draft. And there's a spectrum here that you can operate on, right? You don't necessarily have to do this exactly. Maybe you take one running back in the first round and then you take a bunch of other guys kind of to assemble a team as your RB2 like a a streaming approach almost by just out of pure volume does that make sense
1: yeah absolutely and you're spot on with the idea that what you positions you start off with earlier Let's say if you were to go heavy on wide receiver, if you wanted to implement like a zero RB strategy or even if you wanted to say that, well, I've seen running backs just continually like wind up in like as the fantasy MVPs or at least in the fantasy MVP competition more so than wide receivers. I'm just going to collect running backs first three rounds. I'm just going to hammer running back. But at the same time, you have now and this gets into the conversation of opportunity cost. Because now you've spent so much draft capital towards the front end of the draft, where your Michael Thomases are being drafted, your Julio Jones, your DeAndre Hopkins, you've now missed out on all those players. So while you have now invested so much in one position, so you might have uh, Christian McCaffrey and let's say uh, Derrick Henry and let's say Aaron Jones as your first three running backs off off the board. But those are your those are your running backs. But say your starting wide receiver now, your first wide receiver is Cooper Cup. I mean, that that's the imbalance now that you have to play with. And that was part of a study that I actually did for the article looking at opportunity cost and that you can see the expected value or just the average output of a player select in the first round. And you can see how that average fantasy points per game drops like significantly almost round by round. It kind of levels off like tw- once you get to like the seventh or eighth round. But first rounders and what I've found are expected to output about 17, 18 points per game. Second round, it drops down to 15 points per game. Uh, Third round, down to about 14. Fourth round, down to 13. You can see it start to fall. So if you've invested heavily into running back to the first three rounds, your first wide receiver is not going to meet or even equal the amount that you had spent on a running back in those first three rounds unless you find an outlier. So if you catch lightning in a bottle like, what was it, Uh, Robert Woods, like when he was going off for like a short stretch after Brandon Cooks went down this past season, Uh, Christian Kirk for a time, like over a two or three game span like this past season, you need guys that you would wind up picking in those fourth, fifth or even those middle to late rounds. You need them to pop to offset what you've spent in the first three rounds. So, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree that. That's where opportunity cost comes into play. And that's where, again, the strategy around what you pick, who you pick, and how you build your roster is critical to success in best ball.
0: Well, and I would argue that kind of no matter what, you need to find some of those lightning in a bottle type players at some point in the draft. Uh, Mm -hmm. Whether it's a wide receiver, a tight end, a running back, you need some part of your roster to finish above expectation relative to ADP, relative to the preseason projections, because you're trying to finish at the top of this league, right? You're trying to finish first out of 12 teams. That means that you're going to have to have guys overperform because if everybody's draft played out equally, then we wouldn't have a winner, right? It, it, right. This I'm just I, I'm not illustrating this point very well, but what I'm really trying to say is that you have to take calculated risks. You have to play to your gut to some extent in saying, you know, what I think that this is the year that Mark Andrews breaks out. I think this is the year that Austin Hooper breaks out. And if you can identify those breakout players, it goes a really long way to helping you win these best ball. These best ball leagues because not everybody is going to see those things coming, and if you can stack up two or three of those players across different positions, then you're in really good shape. Absolutely,
1: and I think that uh, taking stances on specific players, I mean, again, it's uh, has a it's a double edged sword, right? Because you can have a stance to say that I'm going to draft a guy like DJ Moore because I've seen his talent. I think he's just going to he's an ascending player, and so I'm just going to get I'm just going to overweight the field and I'm going to try and get him in every single draft. If I can get him at ADP great. If I have to select him a little ahead of ADP fine. If he falls to me later so much the better. But then at the same time, you can have you can take a stance on a later round player and say that well this is also the year that I think Curtis Samuel's going to break out. Because there was a lot of hype around both those wide receivers. And so people that took stances on Curtis Samuel, myself included, it didn't really work out as well. So, I mean, but you have to try and, I guess, force it around some of these fringe guys. I mean, some of these outlier guys, because ADP for, I want to say, let's say the first five rounds is essentially it's it's set there's not too much dithering around like guys that unless an injury occurs i mean there's not too much that changes it's the guys that like towards the middle to late rounds depending on news depending on a blurb from rotor world depending on uh, a highlight tape that's where adp can start to shift i mean think about dk metcalf from last season i mean it was Okay, this guy can't run the 3 cone drill to okay, now this guy's playing Russell Wilson to okay, now this guy could like legitimately be like their number 1 wide receiver. Okay, now he's, you know, he's popping off and he's now their wide receiver one ish. Like that path or that narrative is something that you have to take into account and you have to take that stance. You you really do like when it comes to some of these other guys because everybody's going to want to draft Julio Jones. Everybody's going to want to draft Calvin Ridley. Everybody's going to want to draft Adam Thielen. But it's those later round guys where you're going to have to really look into, I guess, their path or being able to tell yourself a story that they can outperform expectations. And then if you truly believe that, then, yeah, you should you should start to either take them as much as you can or try and overweight the field to get as much of them before their ADP rises.
0: Well, and you also have to consider that there are a lot of unknowns when it comes to certain players, like all the rookies who are entering the NFL draft this season, we don't really have a baseline expectation for those players. Yes, we make some speculations based upon the draft capital invested in them, how they performed at the combine, which sort of offensive scheme or situation are they going into? Are they going to have to compete for touches? Are they going to be given touches right away? We can try to figure that out, but ultimately we don't have the you know multiple years of data that we have on NFL veterans to say, okay, here's what the baseline expectation is for player X. Like DK Metcalf was a great example because He was such an odd player, right? The way that he performed at the Combine, the fact that he was going to this run-heavy team, but he was considered mostly a straight-line speed and power guy. Mm -hmm. It, It ended up working out really well. Like He was a pretty good fit for playing with Russell Wilson within that offense, but... Was I confident making that sort of call when I was drafting best ball in February or March or April or May? Absolutely not. I mean, I wasn't touching DK Metcalf with a 10-foot pole because there was too much uncertainty. But if I was the one person who managed to kind of see that coming, I, I don't know how that would be possible. But if you get that sort of feeling about a player, and it doesn't have to be this much of an unknown, but if you can get ahead of the market and take these guys at their ADP, or just ahead of their ADP, because you think they're going to outproduce that ADP, that's a big deal. Because the market is relatively sharp here. ADP tends to be pretty good at pricing players. And if you can outsmart that market, then you're doing a good job. Absolutely. And like, to even
1: think about some of the other, I mean, other examples of players that were going in the later rounds, That's just like, while we not while we weren't 100% sure it was more of just like you could see the the path to doing that so a guy like John Brown I mean, John Brown going in the, what, 10th, 11th, 12th round, if I'm not not mistaken, like in terms of ADP and best ball last season, but it was just, it was a health concern, right? That was, that was the risk inherent to drafting somebody like John Brown in a new system. Josh
0: Allen concern mixed in there
1: too. (laughs) Yeah. Josh Allen concern mixed in there. Absolutely. So it was just, but can he be that receiver that we saw in Arizona? Not the one that we saw in Baltimore. Can he be that one that we saw in Arizona? And if you believe that, like, if you thought like, I'm just going to try and bet on that talent. It paid off. And I mean, it was you got rewarded for that. But on the other side, it was, could you really see a guy like Will Fuller? Because we know that if he's on the field, he's going to score. But again, with the the health risk, yet again, rears its ugly head in that how many games is he going to be available to us? Like, are we going to get even 10 games out of him? 10 good games out of him? And then so that's where, again, you have to try and you have to play those that balancing act between your risk tolerance in order to kind of hedge or even beat the market in terms of how they value players.
0: Right. And it comes back to finding different types of players, right? Like you can draft Will Fuller because even if he only plays 10 games and only six of those are ones that are going to score for you, that might be enough if you have seven other wide receivers to kind of fill in the space around those Will Fuller weeks. Now to do that, you might want to pair Will Fuller with a more steady PPR type, whether that be Julian Edelman or Jarvis Landry, a player who doesn't always have those big ceiling weeks, but generally is going to put up 8 to 12 points at least every week, something like that, with a PPR scoring, of course. Now, if we're not talking PPR, that's going to affect how these players should be valued. But anyway, yeah, there's a lot to get into here, and I want to save some of this stuff for a later episode when we can dig in deeper to the draft strategy of best ball formats. I want to pivot now, Chris, to... This article that you wrote about roster construction in FFPC best ball leagues. I'll post the link to the article in the show notes. Check that out, listeners. Chris, why don't you start off by explaining your overall methodology here and then maybe pivot from there into what you think the best roster construction variants have in common?
1: Sure. Sure. And uh, when we're talking about roster construction here for folks that are uh, just getting into best ball this season, so roster construction would be the total number of players, like per position, that would make up your entire squad. So if it's a 20, let's say if it's a 20 round draft, you take you know two quarterbacks, six running backs, seven wide receivers. So now that puts us at what 15 players. So that leaves you with maybe three tight ends and two defenses, or You know, three defenses and two tight ends, however, you want to work it out. So that's your roster construction, like your total team, like how much capital you invested into each position throughout the draft. And so while we don't really take that into account because we don't, like, once we're in the draft and we're picking players, most folks, like, they just see the player, they see the guy that they want to take, you know, they're waiting for that guy to drop to them, and then they pick that player. But then, at the same time, you have to kind of zoom out and make sure that, okay, do I have enough running backs? Have I selected too many quarterbacks, tight ends? Do do I need to get a defense now? Do I need to wait? So on and so forth. But for roster construction, so one of the things that I like to do, and I've done this for the past couple of seasons, is actually analyze some of the, the winning rosters. It doesn't matter, like, which platform. I mean, obviously – with that scoring settings, uh, if the scoring settings are different, that makes a difference in the analysis. But I like to break down the winning rosters and take a look at the roster constructions and see like what trends I can pull from it. See what some of these winners were doing and see if there's anything that could be applicable to us in the upcoming season. Now, for uh, specific players that might not always be the case. I mean, unless you're talking about just the elite of elites. Like DeAndre Hopkins is probably always going to be a staple for most people's uh, for uh, for most people's championship rosters. Uh CMC, Saquon Barkley, those types of players and Lamar we Jackson know those guys. too. La- Lamar Jackson absolutely. But we know those guys are going to be a part of most of the winning rosters. But I'm talking about from a high level. I mean, what are some of these guys doing? And as I mentioned beforehand, when I'm just thinking about how I'm going to, I guess, approach uh, drafting a team. I'm thinking, okay, for the onesie positions, I need two. And for the most part, running backs and wide receivers are going to be the drivers for my fantasy production or my team's production per week. I want to take as many swings at running back and wide receiver as possible. The weeks are the week can get long. Injuries occur. Trades, this, that, and the other. Bad defensive matchups. Whatever the case may be, I want as many running backs and wide receivers as possible. So I'm only going to take, or at least my thought process was that I'm only going to take two quarterbacks, maybe two tight ends, maybe three because tight end volatility is pretty high, and then we'll figure out defense and whatnot later. But as I mentioned beforehand, with uh, just looking at uh, the FFPC they were I mean, three quarterbacks was the way to go. And now my first thought was, OK, this has to be just because of the 2019 season. I mean, we saw Ben Roethlisberger go down, Drew Brees, uh, Drew Brees went down. Patrick Mahomes was down for uh, for a little bit. I mean, we saw so many quarterbacks get dinged up and also the influx of rookie quarterbacks. So Daniel Jones coming in, uh, Kyler Murray, so on and so forth that that, that
0: had to be why. See, I disagree with that. That like My first instinct is to look at this and say, the reason that you want three quarterbacks is because you have the space to draft three quarterbacks. These rosters are huge. They let you draft a lot of players in these leagues, unlike, say, the Best Ball 10 format where you only have 20 draft picks. At the FFPC, they give you a lot more roster space to play with. And so at that point, yeah, why not gamble on the third quarterback? I mean, is that ultimately where you landed here? Because that was the first place where my brain went.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly correct because when you do have the, the, the larger roster size, the relative cost of, let's say, drafting, let's say once you get into the 14th, 15th, 16th round, or even later since you got 28 rounds at FFPC, the relative cost of trying to hit on a quarterback. So let's say if you drafted Daniel Jones late, Let's say if uh, I know Kyler Murray is probably not a great example because most folks were drafting him like uh, earlier than the 10th round. But say if you took a swing on even uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick because you knew that he might wind up being a starter at some point because you didn't believe in Josh Rosen down in Miami. The the relative hit rate or actually take that back, not their hit rate, but their relative output. So should they actually produce is going to be way higher than a running back or wide receiver that you would find unless an injury were to occur in the event. Let's say that uh, the only the easiest one I can think of would be, like let's say, Justin Jackson for the Los Angeles Chargers. So let's say if Austin Eckler and Melvin Gordon were to go down, then Justin Jackson now waltzes right into a larger touch share in in the running back position for that team. So then that guy would wind up then vaulting into the expected outcomes for a guy that you would draft in the first, second, or third round. But that's a low probability occurrence. But for quarterbacks, yeah, I can take a swing on a quarterback because with... The way that uh, with quarterback injuries, with the volatility week to week, and just with the way that the, uh, with the league runs, and I looked at, one of the things that I looked at was the number of starters that occur per season. Nothing changed. Nothing changed this season, at least drastically from previous seasons in terms of the number of quarterbacks that we saw start, the number of quarterbacks that actually had at least significant output for their teams. No, it's just the way that the league has run for the past like the four or five years that I looked at it. So yeah, like like with the, with the roster size at FFPC, yeah, drafting an extra quarterback or at least a third quarterback is the optimal way to do it. And again, that was just my first approach to it. And upon looking at it, my takeaway from just doing that quick study was that, yeah, like drafting three quarterbacks is the way to go.
0: Well, and on top of that, the quarterback platoon situations going into a season are so much easier to diagnose and... Imagine how they're going to play out in the preseason, whereas if you're looking at a running back situation with Melvin Gordon, Austin Eckler, and Justin Jackson, even if those top two guys get hurt, there's no guarantee that Justin Jackson is going to get the full workload, whereas if Josh Rosen gets benched or gets hurt, we know that Ryan Fitzpatrick is the backup. He is going to be the full-time starter for that team. And we've seen what he's done with starting opportunities in the past. Right. Another thing that I found interesting about your article and the data that you have on these, op, the, no, I shouldn't say optimal, but the top overall roster constructions is that you see more instances of teams drafting more than three tight ends than you do more than three quarterbacks. Like, for example, the lineup that had the highest win rate was... Three quarterbacks, seven running backs, eight wide receivers, four tight ends, three defenses, three place kickers. All the onesie positions aside from tight end are stuck there at a static three, right? You know, Mm -hmm. one starter, two backups. So why is tight end different? Well, to me, what that says is tight end is different because the tight end can fill the flex, whereas quarterback, defense, and place kicker cannot. And so it's not going to happen very often, but every once in a while, you're going to have that week where two of your tight ends go off. And rather than just having that second tight end, you know, sit on your bench in favor of running back or wide receiver, the flex allows that player's points to get into your optimal lineup for the week. And I think that's the difference with tight end. And that's why you'll see some slightly higher numbers for tight end in these optimal lineups than for quarterback, defense, and place kicker. Without
1: a doubt, and especially on a site like uh, FFPC, where they do have the tight end premium. So you know that the pool of uh, tight ends that are going to be selected is going to be much deeper than what you'd see over at Fanball. So people are are taking shots at not only Darren Waller, but also Foster Moreau. I mean, people are pulling out or trying to see what C.J. Uzuma can do. Ryan Griffin, Trey Burton. I mean, guys that, like, while we're focused on just trying to get through – on Fanball or any of the other smaller rosters, we're just trying to make it through just the you know the normal guys that we would select. Most of the most of the guys that you would see drafted or at least might be an option in casual redraft leagues, like maybe down to uh, I'm trying to think uh, just past maybe um yeah the, I'd say like uh, Tyler Eifert were probably about the deepest that I saw like most people going over on Fanball, maybe a little bit deeper than that, but yeah on FFPC. When you have a lot of uh, uh, the scoring for tight end is so much greater and that position is valued greater, then, yeah, you're going to be taking swings at Jacob Hollister, uh, even past like Gerald Everett, Cameron Brait. I mean, all those guys now have more value or at least more draft value, regardless of what you might think that their season might hold, because week in and week out, it might be instead of O.J. Howard's week, rest in peace, O.J. Howard, it will be Cameron Brait's week. It's not going to be Evan Ingham's week. It's going to be Caden Smith's week in order to put up some production. So talking or like thinking through, I guess, all of the I guess all the opportunities that that position might get. Again, pointing back to the tight end premiums going for FFPC, it just heightens the position as a whole. And that's where you might find folks drafting as four tight ends more often than not.
0: Can you talk next about why you might divert your draft strategy away from these optimal constructions that we're looking at in your article? Because if, if I see that this top lineup construction has a, almost an 11% win, right, win rate, the next best one is only at 6.2%, Like, why wouldn't I just draft that top roster construction every time? Like, What makes people branch out? What makes you branch out? And why should drafters be willing to branch out in spite of this data that tells us what the most common winning lineups look like.
1: Uh, for me it, it comes down to that's where you get into the granularity of the draft itself. And so if I'm if I want to try and go contrarian then it would almost have to be uh, like player-specific. So for me personally, so if I wanted to drop down and look at so that, that wide receiver, so the second roster construction that we're talking about here, three quarterbacks, six running backs, and nine wide receivers and four tight ends, three and three for defense and place kicker, so then I'm now going to try and, I guess, overweight myself on, on wide receivers. So if I wanted to do that, then, yeah, I'm going to try and take swings early, and try and see if I can capture more production at that particular position. So that's where I'm almost thinking that I would try and implement like a zero RB strategy where I want to try and get as much as I can out of that position. And so I'm trying to aim for, like we mentioned earlier, so the elites, the Michael Thomases and all that, but even into some of the middle rounds. And then afterwards, like we were talking earlier, trying to capture any of the Latavius Murrays, even like Royce Freeman, like some of those later round running backs, where my strategy is I'm just going to try and beat you with pass-catching production. And so since at the, my takeaway looking at that is also since they uh, drafted or since four tight ends was also used there, you're trying to also uh, sprinkle in some tight ends. So even sprinkling in tight ends like early – earlier in the, I guess, the early rounds, maybe first through fifth round, grabbing a couple there, that's where I would try and, I guess, force it and say that I just want to rely on pass-catching ability at that point, and then I'll sprinkle in some running backs later.
0: It's interesting to me that you said that the six running back, nine wide receiver breakdown would make you feel like you're investing more on wide receiver earlier, because I see it the other way, kind of linking back to that conversation we had earlier if i see a smaller number for running back only six running backs that makes me think that i invested in two or three workhorse guys at that position and then i kind of stopped worrying about it so that i could focus more on wide receiver this kind of comes back to your example earlier of getting McCaffrey, derrick henry and aaron jones all on the same roster now you could have done that last season maybe you're not going to be able to do that in 2020 but it's we'll just mm-hmm. use that as an example if i have those three guys i maybe only need two or three backups at that position. And that allows me to take more wide receivers to pump up that wide receiver number to nine on the chance that because of the volatility of wide receivers, you know, week to week, they may not score consistently, but they're going to have big weeks kind of scattered throughout the season. If I have more wide receivers, I have more chances to capitalize on those big blow up boom weeks from any individual wide receiver. And If I can do that alongside some stud running backs, Mm -hmm. that's how I see myself winning. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I could, I can
1: actually now that you mentioned that I can see myself doing that exact same thing as well. So hammering running back in the first like three, three to four rounds and afterwards taking some swipes at, uh, at wide receiver. And then, like you just mentioned, trying to cover your uh, cover yourself in terms of injury risk by hitting a couple of backups or a third down back in order to, I guess, augment or complement like the running backs that you already have. Absolutely. I could see myself doing that.
0: Yeah. And in terms of other reasons why you might want to divert away from these top lineup constructions, the first thing for me that comes to mind is just that every draft is different, right? We don't know how these things are going to play out. We might have a plan to draft a certain type of roster, but if I want to do that approach where I'm getting a bunch of stud running backs at the beginning and then going deep on wide receiver in the middle and late rounds... But everybody else kind of has the same thought. The running backs fly off the board early in the first two or three rounds. What Mm. if I don't get those two studs? What if I only end up with one? I have to adjust on the fly. I have to be willing to change my approach midstream, not just in the early rounds, but throughout the entire draft. Like We don't know exactly how things are going to play out in the draft, and that's why you're not always going to get an optimal roster. You have to get the optimal roster for that draft. like The best lineup that you have here, only won 11% of leagues, right? That means mm-hmm. that, what is that? 89% of leagues were won with other roster constructions. I want. I just want to win my league. I don't necessarily <laughs> need one that's going to win every league. Like It's not possible. It doesn't work like that.
1: I wish, but
0: yeah. The only other thing I want to bring up here is that idea of maybe you just made a mistake when you were drafting and you need to make up for that. Like maybe you weren't paying attention to bye weeks You notice that two or three of your tight ends happen to have the same one. That's another reason why you might have to pivot on the fly, right? Kind of react to the choices you've made. Like I did that in a best ball last year where I took two quarterbacks with the same bye. I think it was Lamar Jackson and Dak Prescott. It didn't end up mattering because those guys were both insane all year. Mm-hmm. I took a zero that week in, in my quarterback position, but Ideally, you don't want to be doing that sort of stuff, right? And maybe I should have kind of wised up and just taken a flyer on some cheap quarterback after the fact. I didn't do it. I didn't get punished too much for it. But uh, that's a special case more than anything else, I think. Uh, Anything else along those lines come up for you, Chris?
1: Yeah, because – and just like you mentioned, uh, so for, let's say for folks that do some of those, like the slow draft, that's my preferable style Like for doing for doing best ball drafting is just a slow draft, like six-hour, eight-hour or something like that. But yeah, I, I've auto-drafted quite a few times and wound up with players that I had like zero interest in drafting in the first place or I might have already adopted a strategy. I believe there are one or two times where I typically don't draft a tight end early. Uh, but in a couple of drafts that I was in over on Fanball, I happened to auto-draft and I picked a tight end early, but then I auto-drafted again and wound up with somebody like Eric Ebron in the seventh round. And so you, you have to, I mean, you have to, again, adjust with the draft and you have to adjust with your own draft if you happen to misclick and wind up picking somebody else that you didn't really want to draft at that particular position. So while I think... The uh, roster constructions and their win rates are great guidelines. It doesn't it's not forcing you in order to pick a certain position at any particular time in the draft. These roster constructions are meant to tell a story about your about your team. But if you can tell a better story based off the players that you drafted, then so much the better. Like, for instance, if you drafted, let's say, like you just mentioned, if you had Lamar Jackson and Dak Prescott, like as your two quarterbacks, even if they had the same bye week, it doesn't matter at that point. Like uh, we can say that in hindsight, but again, that there there are other ways that you can wind up winning. And so, like while this, these might be the optimal ways of winning, they're not the only ways of winning.
0: Right, and in that specific example, we should also say that part of the reason why that works is because those guys were both cheap last year in drafts relative to the other Mm -hmm. quarterbacks. You can't just go into your 2020 draft and say, well, if I take Lamar Jackson in the first round and Dak Prescott in the third round, I'll just win because my quarterbacks are going to outscore everybody else. That's not how it works. You have to pick the best roster construction for your league and for that season. Just because last year's best construction was three quarterbacks, seven running backs, eight wide receivers, four tight ends, three defense, three kickers, doesn't mean that the same is going to be true in 2020. The way the season plays out is going to be completely different. We don't know where the busts are going to come from. We don't know where the booms are going to come from. We have to try to figure that out. And that's what ultimately gets us to the best roster construction is not looking at how it worked in the past and duplicating that. It's studying what worked in the past and trying to look at the upcoming season through an educated lens to say, okay, I want to be overweight on wide receivers, because in general, wide receiver targets are being distributed more widely now than they ever have been before. We don't see as many target hog guys in the league as we used to, so that means I need to take more chances and try to cobble together a bunch of seemingly random production from a lot of guys, as opposed to just relying on a couple studs with like a zero RB approach. Now, maybe that gets completely turned on its head in 2020, and we see more of those target hog guys come back. If you're able to sniff that out then you're going to be well ahead of the competition now i don't really have anything else to say on roster construction here chris do you have any other final thoughts here because i want to talk more specifically about some players and team situations that we need to sort out for the 2020 fantasy football best ball season
1: Uh, the only thing that i'll say on on roster construction is that once you get into the draft um i would say don't get sucked into i guess specific archetypes of players like just based off of your your scoring settings and when i say that um uh, i know a lot of folks like once they get into let's say just looking at the wide receiver position it gets into like ppr so, you get into PPR and you think that, all right, well, I want to load up on those guys that are just going to consistently get me, you know, six, seven targets, like 80, 90 yards a week. So, I want my Julian Edelmans. I want my Jarvis Landrys. You know, I want my Calvin Ridley's. I want, I want my slot guys. I want to get as many slot guys. But you, you need also your alpha wide receivers. You need some of the guys that are going to stretch the field. I mean, assuming if Deshaun Jackson was healthy, Will Fuller was healthy, you need some of those guys to because, again, if you're trying to score the most points in your week, for your league on a consistent basis like you're going to need some of those not necessarily outlier performances, but you need guys that are going to score you touchdowns as well. It's not just about mm-hmm. production between the 20s. You need production like within the red zone as well. So falling in love with archetypes. Again, as we said earlier, you kind of need your entire roster to tell a story. You also need your specific player groups to tell a story. So if they, if you can tell a story about your wide receivers or your running backs as to how they can produce, like, do you have enough guys that are going to get you a lot of market share within their team? You got a bunch of guys that are going to get a ton of targets, or at least a lot of targets on a week-to-week basis. Do you have guys that are going to be able to stretch the field, a la Tyree Kill, so on and so forth? So if you have like bits and pieces of that, instead of just relying on just a single archetype, I think that is that is the optimal way to approach it versus just honing in on one specific type.
0: That's a great point. Yeah, you want to diversify the archetypes that you have in a way that makes sense for scoring a lot of points. Um, And I love the fact that you just brought up the idea of touchdown scoring being important because that's something that I do think somehow gets overlooked in fantasy football. Most fantasy football formats are driven by touchdowns more than anything. If you can find the players who spike high touchdown variants, then you're going to go a long way towards winning yourself a league, whether it's best ball or redraft or whatever else. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's dig into some players and situations that you feel represent the biggest question marks that we need to have answered to kind of figure out the best ball format for 2020. And I don't know if you had rookie landing spots on your list, but I'm not going to say that. I'm going to kind of rule that out for my analysis because... It's a little boring because it's unknowable, right? Like right. We're not going to know until the draft where those guys are going and how they're going to impact not only you know their own outlooks, but the outlooks of the, the players that they're going to play with. So I'm going to keep it to some veteran-type players and situations, uh, but I, w- I want you to start. Uh, what's first in your mind in terms of questions we need to answer or situations we need to diagnose heading into the 2020 best ball season?
1: Sure, and I think the first one that comes to mind, since again this article was focused on FFPC tight end scoring, is uh, is at a premium. So if we're looking at tight ends that are that are considered within like the top six or like six or ten in terms of their position, uh, Austin Hooper really kind of sticks out to me, and like in his mm-hmm. situation right now, I mean, more likely going to walk in free agency, but yet still being taken like fairly early. And I guess after this past season where he was peppered with targets, uh, if I'm not mistaken, his target share within Atlanta has kind of it has picked up every year over the past three. Uh, so I think last season he wound up with like an 18 percent target share, which is great for a tight end. But is it something that's sustainable? Is that something that let's say he leaves? Is he going to be able to maintain that like at like at whatever his uh, landing spot is going to wind up being? And so his situation is one that. For right now, I've just been trying to avoid as much as possible because with the way that Atlanta operated last season, I didn't really see Austin Hooper as – I don't put him in the same tier as Zach Ertz. I don't put him in the same tier as George Kittle or Travis Kelsey. I don't put him in a route-running uh, type of type of tight end. I see him as a dump-off, as a, dump as, as a check-down valve like more so than anything else. So for me to think that this is going to continue or even be able to reach the same heights as it did in 2019, it's hard for me to see that happening, especially with them. The rumors flying around now about them wanting to reinvest in the running back position. I think they're in the mix to get a wide receiver in this draft at some point. We'll see. But at the very least, it's just the free agency and his contract situation is one that I'm trying to avoid right now.
0: Yeah, it's tough to know how much of his 2019 production was based on circumstance, right? The fact that Calvin Ridley missed a little bit of time, the fact that Mohamed Sanu got shipped out mid-season, the fact that they had no running game for the most part, and that led to more of those short yardage looks for Austin Hooper, and it was great if you had him in 2019, but can we really expect that to be duplicated in 2020, whether he's on the Falcons or not? I'm not sure if we can. Now, with that said... There really aren't that many great tight ends around. The real problem with him potentially leaving is that when any sort of pass catcher goes from one team to another in free agency, there tends to be a little bit of a learning curve or a grace period before that player gets back to the same level of production they were at in a more you know known or entrenched offense. like The fact that Austin Hooper has been with the Falcons this many years in a row is part of why he was able to find that success. Now, if he has to move to a different team with a different quarterback and a different scheme, that is going to present challenges for him. And that makes him, like you said, a little riskier than maybe he's uh, being considered in these drafts. I really like that call. I, I am fascinated to see where he lands. And kind of along the same lines, I really want to see where the quarterback carousel finishes when it's done spinning, right? Like, and most specifically, the guy for me is Cam Newton. Is he healthy? Where is he going to play? Because he could be an extreme value based upon where he's being drafted now if he can approach the past performances that he put up in other seasons wherever he plays, he's going to impact players on that team, right? He could up- represent a quarterback upgrade to some wide receivers and tight ends out there. Like think about if he went to Chicago to replace Mitch Trubisky, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but if it did like Alan Robinson's value goes up and Anthony Miller's value goes up, the tight ends mm-hmm. might become more intriguing again at the same time. Wherever Cam Newton goes could be a downfall of the running back of that team, right? Because Cam could take goal line rushing opportunities away from that team's running backs, whether that's in Carolina or somewhere else. Now, I think that that might be a little bit overblown. I might be blowing a little bit too much smoke into that balloon. Because Cam hasn't been running as much in recent seasons, and with all this injury concern around him, maybe he'll focus more as a passer. I'm not sure, but we don't know, and because of his previous rushing prowess, we have to consider that at least uh, with regard to whichever running backs he ends up playing with. I'm fascinated to see where he lands.
1: I agree, and actually right now, so this is... uh... ADP pulled from FFPC, but this was done at the beginning of this month. This is from February 7th. Cam Newton is being selected as QB21, right behind Jimmy Garoppolo and right before Sam Darnold. I mean, think about that.
0: Can you imagine if he gets to like 90% of what he used to be? It, it almost right. doesn't matter what team he's on. Like that's, right. that's such a value at 21 overall at quarterback.
1: Right. I'm so happy. Like I I can't avoid not drafting. I mean that that's I have to try and harness that value because we've seen at the very least like what he could do assuming he's on the field for 16 games or I guess or 17 games depending on how the CBA works out. But, I mean, that's that's what you want to try and find. You want to try and find these situations where it's just like you look at these rankings and you're just like, so wait. So Cam Cam Newton, the guy that was, I mean, in the MVP conversation, I mean, in a Super Bowl not three or four years ago, and he's being drafted around Sam Darnold, Joe Burrow, Drew Locke, and Mitchell – no, something doesn't add up
0: here. Yeah, he, he gets to be your QB, two with whoever you drafted earlier. It's insane. Right. Like, I mean, that sort of upside is not something you're going to get. From many players. Now, with that said, it is still quarterback, which is one of the easiest positions to fill out in a best ball. But again, getting back to that idea of finding next year's Lamar Jackson or next year's Dak Prescott, these guys who are being undervalued relative to what sort of performance they are going to put up. Cam Newton could totally be that guy. Mm -hmm. Um, What else are you wondering about as the offseason plays out here, Chris?
1: Uh, The other uh, situation is the Chargers backfield. I mean, we already saw – I mean, talking – I mean, branching off of the QB carousel, we've already seen Phillip Rivers leave, and so his time in L.A. is now now over. So we have to at least try and figure out how that's going to affect – Uh, keenan allen mike williams hunter henry and so on and so forth and melvin gordon was a part of that too but now if we're assuming that melvin gordon's going to leave after his holdout and his contract situation i mean where's he going to wind up with with all the hype that we're seeing for these incoming uh rookie uh, rookie running backs from clyde edwards hilaire to cam akers jk dobbins all those other guys i mean who's to say that a team is just going to look at melvin gordon think about his knee issues when he came into the league and say that well i'm just going to draft this new guy that's coming in who i don't think he's going to hold out on me and i'm going to take him and melvin gordon gets left out i mean so right now melvin gordon is being taken as the or he was earliest month being taken as the rb15 that is a situation i can't see without understanding what the market is going to do or like what Uh, what's landing spots are available for him to even get to where he was at last year, sharing a backfield with Austin Eckler. It's a, it's another situation that I want to avoid. There's too much risk at that level or that time in the draft. You're talking third round. I need to draft a guy that might not even get into a, even a 50, 50 timeshare with a, with the other running backs on his roster. It's hard for me to buy into that.
0: Yeah. That running back tier that starts, in round two and goes into rounds three and round four it's, it's probably a couple tiers really but after the the really solid players are gone you know rb one through rb eight or nine or ten whatever it may be and in, in your own estimation it gets real dicey man like how are you going to value those running backs without knowing where the rookies are going to land without knowing where some of these guys are going to sign like Melvin Gordon it's it's fascinating i'm glad you brought up the chargers because that's another quarterback situation i'm fascinated by like is it time for a Tyrod Taylor renaissance right and if we follow that line of thought the next question has to be can Tyrod hold off a freshly drafted rookie because the Chargers first pick is sixth overall we could definitely see them go after a quarterback in that spot I'm not saying they will but whoever they end up getting I I assume they're going to draft somebody at the quarterback position Mm -hmm. is Tyrod Taylor going to be able to hold that player off I have no idea and whoever the quarterback ends up being for the Chargers how is that going to affect Keenan Allen and Austin Eckler Mike Williams etc it's it's a fascinating team because The quarterback situation is so unresolved there. I I can't wait to see how that one plays out either. Uh, Another thing that I'm wondering about is where the Browns are going to end up on this spectrum of post-hype kind of coming off of a very disappointing 2019 season. Nick Chubb isn't being affected at all. He's being drafted on average in the first round. But what happens if Kareem Hunt re-signs with the Browns? can baker mayfield and odell beckham jr bounce back after their disappointing seasons i feel like this could be a great buying opportunity for this offense but it's really going to depend on how much the public is wise to that idea of projecting positive regression right Uh, because i can look at these guys and say oh yeah they're good enough to bounce back i think they're going to bounce back if that hype continues to accumulate beyond me to other people who are drafting these formats if Odell Beckham's still going in the second round, there's no value there, right? But if he starts to fall into the late third or the early fourth, at that point, I am very interested and very excited to draft him because, like Cam Newton we were talking about earlier, I've seen the pinnacles that Odell Beckham Jr. can perform at. And if he can get back to you know, most of that production again at a third-round draft cost, sign me up, man. And Baker Mayfield, again, all the talent in the world, but just didn't have a good 2019. And there are factors that we can point to, whether it be the coaching or the play calling or whatever you want to call it, that lead me to believe that he has much higher potential than we saw. Like maybe he ends up you know, continuing to be a bust. I, I could see that too, but my gut reaction is that we need to give him more time to figure it out and he could really bounce back in 2020 as well. What do you think about the Browns uh, for best ball?
1: So... I've been kicking around this idea that uh, when it comes to teams and just like the overall team hype, like across the league, it's 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 part of what drives us to draft some of the players on that team. Like, I don't care how many or like which asset that I can get. But if I think a team is going to be good, I want to have a part of that team. And to me, that narrative makes sense, like especially if you're talking about. Uh, teams like the the Patriots doesn't matter like which player especially in the best ball format because I don't know which player I don't know if it's going to be Rex Burkhead week or James White week or whichever I just want one of them right and like this was a and like uh, a study that I've been I've been working on it might be one of the next like best ball pieces because I wanted to try and connect those narratives. Trying to look at either Super Bowl odds or just like the general narratives like behind each team like coming into the season to how much we draft or how much we invest into that team, and then also then the corresponding win rates, essentially trying to answer the question, do we know better? But when it came to the Cleveland Browns, we definitely didn't. I mean, we were I mean, so highly invested in Odell Beckham. He was the first or second round pick. Uh, Jarvis Landry, fourth, fifth round pick. Uh, Baker Mayfield was, I think, probably the third or fourth QB off the board. Yeah, with somewhere seventh... between
0: QB three and QB five or QB six, I
1: think. Right, like a seventh, eighth round ADP. David Njoku, I mean, tied in, let's say, five, six, seven, like somewhere in there, uh, maybe a little bit later. Uh, I mean, so there were so many like high value assets that were a part of the Cleveland Browns. And if you drafted, I mean, any of them, maybe minus Nick Chubb, I think Nick Jubb and like Jarvis Landry were the two only like I the saviors like for if you invested in Cleveland Browns. Anybody else well, especially for Odell, because if you miss out on your first round pick, that is essentially like a back death ranking. sense. Yeah. Right. So those were like those were assets that you just couldn't come back from. So this might be like you just mentioned, this might be a value a type of uh type of window for us to invest back in that team. And that's if you approach it from a, I guess, non-emotional, completely objective, like if you look at it from the sense that Odell has had, I mean, well, both Odell and Jarvis, like they've had either core muscle surgery, hip surgery or whatever, so they should be healthy. Uh, Baker Mayfield, at least he's off social media, so maybe he's putting more work <laughs> into his craft. I mean there there's narratives that you can see yourself le- – and also their offensive well, – while their head coach is now gone. They have – at least we're thinking they have a better system in place in order to maximize uh, Baker Mayfield. So it, to me it sounds like at this point, minus David and Joku, because we don't know what they're – like what he can do or if he's going to be capable of doing what we thought he could do when he came into the league – like the Cleveland Browns do present a buying opportunity right now. I mean, uh, Odell Beckham, if I'm not saying he's going behind like uh, Amari Cooper, at least in ADP. So he's now dropped about um, round and a half or so. Uh, Baker Mayfield is fairly far back there in terms of like quarterback ADP. So like a mm-hmm. lot of those assets that like that burned a lot of drafters to me that it signals a buying opportunity. It signals a like I want to try and capture that value because if I can get baker mayfield now at the quarterback let's say 15 14 versus having to draft him like at qb8 like most folks were like even higher like last season sure sign me up for that less risk i'm okay with that
0: i'm glad you brought up amari cooper because that's the last big question mark for me how Mm -hmm. are the cowboys going to approach free agency if dak prescott leaves and a new quarterback is installed how will the dallas offense be affected if amari cooper leaves How high can Michael Gallup climb up ADP, up our projections? Are we going to see shades of a situation similar to Juju Smith-Schuster in 2019 without Antonio Brown around to absorb coverage? Like Maybe we pump up Michael Gallup too much because we expect all these extra targets, but we don't account for the drop in efficiency without Amari Cooper there to dictate some of the coverage, right? And can we get one last ride with Randall Cobb and/or Mike McCarthy if Amari Cooper leaves? Like, that's another guy who could be going up. Now, I, full disclosure, I have no faith in Randall Cobb uh, to, to stay healthy for a whole season, to be a major contributor. But in best ball, if he gives me five good weeks, that might be good enough. One more thing in free agency, it sounds like Jason Witten's going to leave. Does that mean that Blake Jarwin can be a top 15 tight end? And if both Witten and Amari Cooper leave, could Jarwin even approach the top 10 at his position? Like, all this stuff is so fluid right now, and I'm assuming that Dak comes back. I don't know what's going to happen with the other guys, and it's going to make for a lot of value for certain guys one way or another. I just don't know how it's going to make for that value, and I, I can't wait to see how it plays out
1: same and like from a from a financial standpoint this is where my ignorance comes in because I don't know how all the the dollars and cents fit together I can't make that puzzle work because I'm hearing uh franchise tag and like all this other stuff and I'm assuming that the current like cba negotiations probably play into why we're waiting to hear or waiting for those dominoes to drop as to how the cowboys are going to proceed with all that but just looking at it from a fantasy standpoint or even just like a like on-field production standpoint, uh, I definitely share your concern that yeah, Amari leaves and Dax stays, then Gallup kind of falls into the well. We we looked at his rookie season in 2018, then we saw him like take a step forward in 2019, and yeah, we don't need Amari Cooper. Yeah, he, like he was hurt anyway, and Gallup could be the number one, and then he could wind up faltering. Now in Juju Smith-Schuster's defense, Ben Roethlisberger got hurt juju got hurt so 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 on and so forth but either way i don't think that there's anything in gallup's profile i don't think or i guess it's hard for me to see how all of a sudden his efficiency winds up taking yet another jump in his third year and he becomes essentially the amari cooper of his team it could happen not saying it couldn't but again it's just it's hard for me to see that but either way i do think that um, with Randall Cobb, I'm assuming they're going to wind up keeping him since he has ties to Mike McCarthy. Blake Jarwin, I think he's a good tight end, a nice athletic tight end. I was hoping to see more of him than Jason Witten. It just seems like that whole offense, not as much as the Chargers, but they're also a team that's right now, it's kind of in flux and their values right now in best ball kind of present that opp- that buying opportunity based off of what we're hearing from either beat writers even like interviews from Jerry Jones, so on and so forth, that yeah, I think the market kind of reflects the uncertainty that we have with Dallas.
0: And with that in mind, because there's uncertainty all over the place, not only with where players are going to go, but with who's going to get injured next season, we don't know any of that. I, I think this is the perfect time to jump into a best ball and start drafting these secondary Cowboys offensive weapons behind Cooper and Zeke because. If Cooper leaves, Gallup's price is going to go way up. I'd much rather get in on Gallup now while there's still some thought that Amari Cooper could stay there Mm -hmm. and Jarwin too, because Jason Witten still is more associated with Dallas than any other team. Even if the news coming out is saying that he's probably going to leave, they're not saying he's definitely going to leave. And people don't really remember who Blake Jarwin is because he didn't do all that much over the past couple seasons. But like you, I saw a lot of athletic flashes from Jarwin during the season And with that in mind, I want to be in on him now while there is still that uncertainty driving down his price. And Tony Pollard, too. Yeah, Tony Pollard is a great call as well. As soon as Jason Witten does sign with another team, if he does that, then Blake Jarwin is automatically going to go up in value in these ADPs of best balls. We're not going to be able to avoid it. So those are the types of things you can be looking for right now, and it's one of the reasons why. I love this format. We talked about it earlier. Like the way I draft now in February is going to be totally different than the way we draft after free agency, then after the draft, then after training camp. It's like all these little mini draft seasons that we get throughout the off season. It's fantastic.
1: Oh, I absolutely love it. I mean, from the, especially when it comes to best ball, the, once you start looking at trying to incorporate rookies into there, because I know a lot of folks are picking up or drafting DeAndre Swift, Dobbins, Akers, and all those guys. Uh, so you got that layer, you have the veteran layer, you have the free agency layer. I mean, there's just so many different ways that you can approach best ball. and a lot of folks take different stances because I, I know there are some, uh, especially some of these like high volume best ball players. Um, I forget the guy's name specifically, but there's one that he strictly says like no rookies. He does not draft rookies. like their first year doesn't matter if it's running back wide receiver or whatever. That, like hes just have a hard and fast rule that that's that's what he does, and that's his approach. And that's fine. And the same way that, I mean, some folks might not want to draft players from, uh, from specific teams or teams that they feel are going to be poor so if you walked into last season and you thought that all right there's no way the miami dolphins are going to even win a game i don't want to draft any assets attached with a bad offense or even a bad franchise so i'm going to completely avoid them well then you missed out on ryan F- fitzpatrick and Devonte parker so okay Again, there's there's levels, there's different strategies, there's different things that you can apply, or different mindsets you can apply to it that can still wind up winning you at the very least. I think with Fanball, what's the minimum you can walk out with? Like what, what hundred bucks? And say, hey, why not? You know, if you want to try and invest in these players or invest in guys that you're interested in, then why not try it? And uh, that's why I, and try and build a portfolio such so you have different exposure levels to these players and then wind up you know taking home some cash at the end of the season.
0: Yeah, I love it, man. This has been great, Chris. Uh, I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk best ball with me. We'll have you back on at a later date to dive a little bit deeper into the granular strategy. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about specific ranges of ADP, like which players we like in certain rounds, things like that. Uh, But for now, uh, let's sign off. Why don't you let the folks know where they can find you on social media, where they can find your work, and all that good stuff.
1: Uh, You can find me on Twitter, at ChrisAllenFFWX. I'll be doing Dynasty content. Uh, and also best ball content uh, over at four for four uh, then also i'll be doing a little bit of uh, some dynasty content over at dynasty league football dlf who we have a partnership with uh, so you can you can find me like just doing content everywhere over the off season like i said there is no off season it's just probably uh, my friend uh russ he says it's just the non-point scoring season so yeah with that i'll turn it back to you greg thanks again for having me on
0: though Hey, very good. Thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll have to get you back on to talk Dynasty at some point too, because that's the other thing that's kind of weighing on all of our minds this time of year. It's, it's best ball and Dynasty. It's it's fantastic, and yeah, good to have you on. Thanks again.
1: Once, uh, most definitely.
0: And that does it for this episode of the Most Accurate Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our discussion about best ball. Be sure to give Chris Allen a follow at Chris Allen FFWX. You can follow me on Twitter at Greg Sauce. We'll be back again soon with more dynasty and best ball content leading up to the nfl draft so stay subscribed and if you wouldn't mind please give us a rating and review i hope that you like what you're listening to on these episodes if you do uh those ratings and reviews would be much appreciated so thanks for that in advance and until next time thanks for listening to the most accurate podcast